0: To History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host Jessica Blissett,
1: and I'm your other host Brenna Miller. Many people around the world are familiar with the now iconic image of the Korean Peninsula, taken at night from space. The image shows South Korea's cities and towns alight throughout the country, while the North is virtually cloaked in darkness. This image has become a symbol of the stark differences between the two countries' developments and outlooks and the perception that many Americans have of the isolation, secretiveness, and hostility of the so-called hermit kingdom.
0: But what does the world look like from North Korea's perspective? Today, we're here with three historians to explore how, when, and why North Korea seems to have diverged so much from the rest of the world and to try to understand and figure out what the world looks like from inside the hermit kingdom.
1: From Otterbein University, we have Deborah Solomon, an assistant professor of history and political science specializing in Japanese colonization of Korea.
0: Hi, it's great to be here. From Ohio State University, we have Mitchell Lerner, an associate professor specializing in U.S.-Korean relations and director of the Institute for Korean Studies. Thanks for having me.
1: And finally, we also have Bei Hwang, a lecturer at the Ohio State University in International Studies Department and a faculty member in Korean Studies who focuses on East Asia.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us today. First off, let's talk about
0: the impression that many Americans have of North Korea. Why is North Korea nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, and how long has it had this reputation? Is it accurate?
3: Well, actually, the nickname the Hermit Kingdom really predates the division of Korea along the 38th parallel in 1945. So that the first known instance of it being called the Hermit Kingdom is in a Western book that talked about it as Korea in general as a hermit kingdom in the early 1880s.
4: Yeah, it's really actually, I think, kind of ironic. We have this image of North Korea as the hermit kingdom, and yet it, the name actually refers to Korea going back hundreds of years. And without going through Korean history, it's a name that's really born out of a, a number of invasions and, and wars in the 1500s and the 1600s, conflict they have with Japan, with the Manchus, that really, um, along with some some nationalist values and a, a unique sort of um, Confucian heritage in the country, That really creates a a nation that that divides itself, that that withdraws from the rest of the world, particularly as the West is starting to expand in East Asia in the 1800s. And the real irony is now that the country's been divided, we think of North Korea as the hermit kingdom rather than recognizing that this is part of the long historical tradition of the country itself. And the irony is that North Korea is really not a hermit kingdom. They certainly are closed off to some extent to the West, and they've made it pretty clear that they don't welcome Western involvement. But they're actually fairly well involved in the world. There are roughly 50,000 North Korean workers who are scattered around the world working in China, working in Russia. They have ties and they have uh, diplomatic recognition with any number of countries. And if you look back over the years of the Cold War, it's, it's off and on sometimes, but they had good relations with, with Cuba, with East Germany, with Albania. So they're really not the hermit kingdom that we think of in the West. And, and, and it's really the that that's a name that would have been much better applied a couple centuries ago when it was one nation and really not in today's vernacular.
2: One 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 of the historical explanation about the nickname Hermit Kingdom I think is originated from those the Western diplomats when they visit or scout around East Asia in nineteenth century and eighteenth century. But it's actually between thirteen ninety two and nineteen ten there's a dynasty called Choson Dynasty or Li Dynasty. It's, it's actually the longest single surname dynasty in the history of human civilization, the Joseon dynasty has that kind of reputation. So if you have 500 years old, a kingdom with single surname, E, and outside, from the outside perspective, is a kingdom of hermit
3: This idea that North Korea is somehow more hermetically sealed from the outside world than the rest of the the peninsula is historically not something that we see.
1: Today, the country has a reputation, though, of being very difficult, especially for Westerners, as you mentioned, to get information from. So how do scholars and journalists learn about North Korea today? I would say
3: that that is probably the biggest problem with uh, trying to study North Korea today is how unreliable all of the sources of information are, how limited and really narrow they are, and how difficult it is to get a well-balanced and well-rounded picture.
4: Yeah, the question of how we get sources is a difficult one. And, and a lot of what we know about North Korea comes from defector testimony. And there, there's thousands of, of defectors from North Korea that have settled in the South or elsewhere. Uh, but there's always questions about their reliability. So we use those with some caution. There's other sources, especially in the, the electronic age. There's uh, growing numbers of uh, satellite images that we use to decipher, particularly if you work in sort of national security, as I do. We use satellites that we over the North, so we can detect when they're moving prison populations, when they're closing uh, one of their Kwanlisos, one of their political prison camps. We use them to monitor the Yongbyon uh, nuclear facility. So to some extent, we can use technology. Um, but by and large, as Deborah says, it really is, it, it's, a diff- it's like a black hole, and there's just not a lot out there. Now, one thing that we have had access to over the last decade or so, uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we started to get access to North Korean government records through the communist bloc states. Now, we can't get access, obviously, into, you know, the file cabinets of North Korea, if there even are file cabinets in North Korea. But there were times when the North Korean ambassador in Moscow or in Beijing or wherever it happened to be was sending information. And and as we've normalized relations with the communist bloc states, we've gotten access to a lot of these materials. Now, this only takes us really through the 1980s. But there are, there's a scholarly project based in Washington that really uses these materials to draw lessons from the past, but also to apply them a little bit to understanding what motivates North Korea, uh, what its values are, and then apply those lessons to contemporary society.
2: Yeah, there is no question. I mean, the gathering information from North Korea is extremely difficult, as Mitch just told about those North Korean defectors. Now we have probably more than 50,000 North Korean defectors all around the world. There's probably 30,000, more than 30,000 in South Korea. So it's always the, one of the best information and you get is from, from human intelligence. Before those level of information gathering, it's it's very difficult to have those information from North Korea because North Korea is a extremely homogeneous country uh, in terms of linguistically, in terms of ethnically, 99.9% of North Korea is homogeneous. So it's it's a mission impossible. (laughs) It's, it's, It's impossible to infiltrate inside North Korea and gathering information if you are outside. So the limit of human intelligence is probably the biggest barrier to understand North Korea. And I believe that's exactly the reason why North Korea can just disguise themselves as a hermit kingdom Mm. or country of mystery, uh, so that people can guess about their behavior. Because when your country is that poor, that desperate, surrounded by all those great powers, with famine and starvation, all kinds of negative things going on, you try to camouflage yourself with that kind of image and limit information so we can guess, so they hope we can miss, so they can uh, maximize their gains out of our miscalculation.
0: Perhaps that homogeneity also helps explain our next question. We tend to think of North Korea as largely static, but it's gone through at least three generations of leadership since the 1950s. What do we know about how life inside North Korea has changed through these transitions and how the leadership's internal logic has changed.
3: Is there an evolution we can discern? I would say that there are definitely... A lot of different internal changes and a lot of evolution that's gone on in North Korea. And certainly the leadership transition in late 2011, early 2012 was something that was really closely watched. And there were a lot of predictions that North Korea would open up more or become a more engaged country with Western nations and other things like that. And really the opposite seems to be happening, at least in relation to the West, where there really seems to be a kind of hunkering down and a tightening of the borders. I know that Refugees to South Korea have really dropped since 2012, for example, and other things like that. So there's really been a ratcheting up of security and kind of isolation in North
2: Korea. For people in North Korea, for three generations of dictatorship, it's just just I mean, it's just a piece of cake for them because they have a 500 years old dynasty experience between 1392 and ninety ten. There's 27, 28 kings, and all those kings have last name, Lee. So they have only three kings in past 70 years or something like that. So for them... The leadership, the duration of political uh, control is nothing new, They just so natural. When you talk about many North Korean defectors, I mean their complaint is mostly about economics or social or cultural conditions. They seldom complain about those political issues, and many North Korean defectors themselves uh, want to be classified as economic refugee, not political refugee, because for them, it's nothing new. It's only three generation. Come on, we have 27 generations of single uh, surname dynasty.
4: I, and I, I generally agree with Deborah, but I, I, with, with a little bit of a qualification. And that is that I think this probably falls under the heading of uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There have been a lot of superficial changes, and, and Deborah acknowledges that. And, and I know when, when Kim Jong-un came to power, and I was one of the people who was optimistic that maybe there would be changes going on. It, instead, things uh, the, the changes have been cosmetic, and the place remains pretty much a, a repressed police state as she said. Now, there are. there's maybe one change that, that I think I've seen over the course of these three sort of tyrannical police states. And and biggest one for me is that uh, Kim Il-sung, the founder and, and the first president, I, f- I feel like looking back at the historical records, he had somewhat of an ideological hold on the people. He had uh, created a cult of personality that, that really dwarfs almost anything we've seen in the modern era. And there's generally a sense, I think, in the 60s and the 70s that um, Kim jong il was something special, that the nation was something special, that we had to, to behave in certain ways in accordance with the, the precepts of the Kim family, because this is ideologically the way we're trained. I mean, understand this is a society where, back in, in the '60s, um, people had to walk around with a button on their lapel shirt and jacket all the time. that was a picture of Kim Il-Sung. When kids are raised in schools, most of what they're taught is Kim Il-sung. Even in, in nurseries as a young child, you're taken from your family five days a week, and you're fed with a huge picture of Kim Il-sung behind you so you associate the Kim family with taking care of you so I think that generation of the 60s and the 70s grew up at least to some extent thinking th- that th- this is just this is the way it is for Korea and that's good uh, the Kim family is, is wonderful and magnanimous, we have it better than most of the rest of the world and there wasn't the same sort of information flowing in that there is today. Now I think it's a little bit more of just a blatant police state the new Kim rules much more through overt fear and repression, and in some cases, sort of buying over the loyalty of the, the elites in Pyongyang. But there's much less, I think, of genuine buy-in now than there was 50 years ago.
3: Right. And again, the the question of how you measure genuine buy-in, I think it's a fascinating one, and it's really, really difficult to figure out if the only people that you have to talk about these things. If your only sources of human information are either North Korean state media or uh, refugees from North Korea who have clearly made the decision for whatever reason to flee, And one thing that I think is really interesting about the refugee population is that they tend to be from the most marginalized parts of North Korea. And I've heard that something like 70 percent of them are female. It's a really something that. It's often women in very poor regions that are escaping out of sheer desperation. And so they are, by their position in North Korea, the farthest away from the centers of political power. And on the one hand, they have really meaningful things to say about their experiences, even as those are problematic. And on the other hand, those are obviously not normative representations of how North Koreans feel about what's going on inside the regime.
1: To kind of continue on this idea of what it's like inside North Korea, so much of what we know, as you guys have mentioned, has been kind of from the outside looking in or from people on the margins of society who have kind of left. So what do we know about Pyongyang's view of the rest of the world? Has this view changed over time? And what is its relationship, especially with its neighbors? I definitely think that North
3: Korean international relations is a really, really fascinating subject. And it's really an area in which we see a whole range of different tactics over time and really unusual kinds of strategies to try to get hard currency into the country and other things like that. And so it really is a very, very fascinating and unique kind of international relations with the rest of the world.
4: I just think the most interesting relationship, and here's an example of where history can maybe inform current policy in a way that it usually is not, that's the relationship with China whenever there's a crisis in North Korea, our policymakers and our media tends to rush and say, it's China's problem, China's got to control them. Um, and there's this image of, of China as being sort of the puppet master and North Korea is dependent on them and, and China can control them. And, and I, I don't think history supports that image. If you look at, and I mentioned these new materials that we, we have gotten from inside the communist bloc relatively recently, and you see the inherent tensions between North Korea and China. And this goes all the way back even to the Korean War, when China really saves North Korea, and yet there's, there's pretty clear underlying tensions between the Kim leadership and uh, and the Chinese leadership, and their military tensions, there's diplomatic tensions, and, and it continues over the course of the next generations. In in the late 60s, uh, there's a series of border wars, uh, border conflicts fought between China and North Korea. Things were so bad that at one point in the Cultural Revolution, a group of um, Chinese ethnic uh, Red Guard kill a number of ethnic North Koreans living on the border, and then they put their body in a train and they seal it and they spray paint across it with graffiti. You're next, you little revisionists. And they send the train back into South Korea. So this is not really a historically positive relationship. So even today, we saw when the Le- WikiLeaks documents came out, there's tension, there's rivalry. Sometimes I feel like China is just as frustrated with North Korea as the United States is. So the relationship there, I think, is one that is dramatically oversimplified. As for sort of the larger picture, I guess I feel like North Korea is really the ultimate example of of realpolitik. They have been advancing their own self-interest when they're a relatively weak and unstable country by exploiting rivalries and threatening their neighbors and all in all with absolutely no loyalty to anyone, no true relationship with anyone. They have played a a weak hand brilliantly and have used foreign policy as a mechanism to keep the nation stable and keep the Kim family in power.
2: I I think it's uh, probably better to look at North Koreans' perspective toward the world I mean, North Koreans is something like they are wearing sunglasses. Uh, so currently, it's, I mean, in the 21st century, after all, the second uh, generation of their dictatorship, now is the third generation. It's, it's, I mean, they are wearing lens of transition. So it's something like, I mean, when you're inside the dark, uh, interior uh, of the house, you can have very clear lens. So the North Korean regime clearly understand what's going on inside the North Korea. But when you're wearing the transitional lens and outside with bright under the bright sun, they need those shields so they can look at from their perspective to the world. And if you look at the North Koreans uh, as a communist regime. They, they may have leadish lens to look at the world. If they want to have some kind of opening of the market because they are so poor and desperate and they have no other chance to uh, re, uh, revitalize or rebuild their economy, they have to look at the different color of the lens. But it all depends on North Korean regime's leadership's perspective, if leadership see those clear pictures inside the building, they can do. But they definitely keep their transitional lens to the outside. So we cannot actually see what's going on inside because that dark shade of their glasses keeping to look it into what's going on in North Korea because that sunglasses blocked the movement of their eyes. So we keep guessing. (laughs) (laughs) When they try to maximize our guessing, they are winning always because panic, because North Korea is so unpredictable. It's difficult to develop our strategy while North Koreans just relax and developing their strategy and enjoy the sunlight, dry sunlight.
4: Yeah, I think Youngbae hits on an an important point there, and that's the fact that I think the North Korean leadership really subordinates its foreign policy to its domestic policy. Um, In order to maintain power and stability, at least for the elites in Pyongyang, they will do anything. Um, and it's the nature of the, the, the what we think of as their unpredictability it's why sometimes they have close relationships with China and other times they're blasting China it's why they have the say in the Cold War they had the same relationship with the Soviet Union it's why sometimes there's outreach efforts to the south or to other nations and and it's really all designed to above all else stabilize a, a regime that is clearly pretty despotic and, and really has no legitimate claim to power and so this notion of sort of rallying the people behind the leadership in it, whether that means to fight off a foreign threat or become the leadership deserves it because they are better than certain some other regime or whatever it happens to be. It's foreign policy in the service of maintaining the leadership that currently exists.
3: Right. And so I think if you look at some of the forces that are at work in North Korea, I think that there's definitely within the regime, they really thrive on isolation. It's the way that they've been able to maintain the level of control that they've maintained. But they also are really targeting a very specific part of the population, because they really need the elite support in order for their regime to continue. And it's really only under this current mode of leadership that those elites could imagine retaining the high-ranking position in government that they have, whereas if there was any kind of significant regime change, those elites know that they would really lose access to power and things like that. So there's both this attempt to really limit and distort information that's coming in from the outside, but also a very targeted and uneven use of the internal population in order to gain support from the most critical people within North Korea?
1: Most of the information that we have outside is then coming from people who are leaving and defecting, these kind of more marginal groups. And if then most of this foreign policy is in the service of these kinds of elite groups, then what do we know about how life might be different for different strata of people in society? Do we have any information about that?
3: I think we definitely have significantly less than we do almost anywhere else that I know of. I mean, I often think I'm watching what's happening in Cuba right now, for example, and I'm sort of thinking about how a previously isolated regime is going to transition into life after Fidel Castro's death. But I also can't even begin to compare the level of connections that Cuba had with the outside world even under Castro, with the kind of isolation that's gone on in North Korea. There certainly are sources of information, but I think that comparatively they are really, really limited, uh, especially in relation to what we know about China, what we know about South Korea, what we know about Japan. It's just night and day.
4: And while that's true, I think we can generalize a little bit, particularly with regard to that question of, of class strata. Uh, The Kim family has always, and certainly the current Kim, they have maintained power because they have a close relationship with political and military elites in Pyongyang. There's maybe a growing sort of middle class in in an economic sense. It's very small. And by and large, outside of Pyongyang in particular, things are dramatically worse in terms of of economic situations, political influence. So there's a a dramatic divide inside the country, maybe more striking, I think, than you'll find in almost any other place, where there's a powerful elite based in the capital city City, and then everybody else is, is struggles to a much greater degree.
3: Right, definitely. And, and this gives you a sense of some of the difficulty of gaining information about North Korea, but the fact that everything that we do have supports this vision of stratification. One thing that scholars have been working on recently is measuring the strength of pixels of light coming out of North Korea with the assumption that that the more light, the more resources an area has, and it certainly appears that The tighter sanctions are visited upon North Korea, the more they concentrate their wealth and resources in very specific areas that are suggestive of the political and military elite. And they're really channeling resources away from the people that are the most vulnerable in society.
4: Right. And and so this is a great, I mean, it's a whole other conversation, but the question of whether or not sanctions work. Mm-hmm. Right and, and and North Korea is is heavily sanctioned all the time and and there may be some who think that's good policy I don't necessarily think so and 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 largely it's because the Kim family has never shown any reluctance to let pretty much ninety percent of the population starve to death and as long as that elite is happy and they have enough going on in black market trade and nuclear weapons and opium trade and everything else counterfeiting that they're bringing enough money to keep that elite population stable so the sanctions that go up are are hitting the outskirts of the. Um, nation in a way that's really not going to affect the political situation.
2: Yes, I mean generally in uh, in terms of historical sanctions, you 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 see comparative effectiveness economic sanctions, especially against the totalitarian regime. I mean, the North Korea is probably the most organized dictatorship in the world. And when you have a, that kind of high level of totalitarian control, economic sanctions usually backfire. When you have economic sanctions, it actually help those top leadership and marginalize most of the people. So it's actually, um, if you have a sanction against a relatively more democratic regime, you can mobilize more mass public opinion against their government so you can expect the better outcome from the sanction. But if you have a sanctions, is a heavily controlled totalitarian regime against North Korea. It always benefit the leadership. Mitch mentioned about 20 years ago, the North Korea has a great famine. and Some estimate that they lost about 300,000 people because of famine and starvation and malnutrition. The outcome well, they have a successful power transfer from father Kim Jong-il to current leader Kim Jong-un, virtually no opposition. I mean, people really support those transfer of power after massive Western sanctions. So sanctions are, always works for the leadership, especially against the totalitarian regime.
3: Right. And I think that this fuels this idea of the more isolated North Korea can remain, the more effectively they can really control the population.
0: So does that help explain a seeming stasis in the economic situation in North Korea, whereas most other communist countries, their economies have evolved dramatically over the years?
3: Well, certainly one mode that we've seen with communist countries, definitely with China and with Vietnam, is real move towards capitalist economic policies by the government, a really conscious move in that direction. And we haven't seen anything like that in North Korea, but there's a lot of evidence that markets and things like that are beginning to grow in North Korea more than they had been before. And There are more kind of imported goods from China, for example, Uh, I had a professor that brought back pictures from China uh, relatively recently that had images of like knockoff Disney backpacks, uh, um, (laughs) you know, on the backs of uh, school kids on their way to school. And he also had some images of pawn shops in Pyongyang, which is really new and stuff like that. So I think that there are certainly cracks, but there there really isn't this kind of governmental move towards capitalizing the economy.
4: Debs was absolutely right. In terms of official policy and overt policy, the, the DPRK government, the Kim government, um, is still avowedly anti-free market, anti-capitalist. So in 1994, as Youngbae said, there was this um, huge economic famine, and that undermined the national distribution system. That was the lifeline for North Korean people. The government sent them essentially food and supplies every month. Well, that broke down in 1994 in, in the wake of this horrible economic catastrophe. Um, and what started to grow since then, and what has really taken off over the last, I don't know, five, eight years, has been these private markets. Uh, they call them the jang medang, and and it's i think it's it's slowly really um creating a, a sense of market consciousness within the society and there's all sorts of anecdotal evidence there's these as you said there's these pawn shops they used to be these tiny little like outdoor markets in villages where people would kind of secretly sell goods now they're they're like established centers it's like a big warehouse where you go and even though the government doesn't acknowledge it officially it actually plays a role in regulating it so state officials will sell you like a vendor pass that you need it's really bribes but you have to bribe them to get a vendor pass to go in and sell things it's also undermining the extent to which this younger generation sort of looks up to the government as their great provider and protector. And so there's all sorts of stories about this younger generation. There's many of them who have defected have written in you know, the New York Times and books and the Washington Post about how their, their heroes are no longer the Kim family. They're, they're people who are bringing money into society. And, and then the, the way that the government kind of gets tied into all of this is that in order to start one of these private businesses, you need currency. You need hard currency. And you get that from someone who has connections, which usually means someone who's part of the government. So we're getting the emergence of this kind of middle class money lending element that has ties to the government. In some cases is the government because they're the only ones with money. And then, of course, they have a vested interest in being paid back, which means they have a vested interest in making sure these private markets survive. So even though on the surface, North Korea remains this sort of, you know, Stalinist backwards, semi-communist dictatorship there's a lot of signs underneath that, that the market is emerging and may have some influence.
3: Right. And I think definitely the famines really accelerated that process. And I think we can really see the 19, mid-1990s as a turning point in that phenomenon.
1: So what have U.S.-North Korean relations been like since the Korean War in general, if we can sort of offer a summary in any... You know, I can spend a couple hours on <laughs> yeah. this
4: or I can do it in a sentence which, and say North Korean-U.S. relations have always really been awful. You probably want more than that, but but to the extent that there is historical consistency in in any international relationship, that's it. And I mean, there's times when it's better and it's worse. In the late 60s, we have what we sometimes call the Second Korean War, where where there were some real hostilities between the two sides. In 1994, in a case that most Americans don't know, we almost went to war with them again. The Clinton administration was literally hours from proving a military strike on the Yongbyon nuclear plant. Like I said earlier, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's been a relationship that has been marked by hostility and rivalry and and war in one case and lots of close to wars in the other, and, and I don't see any sign that things are changing in the immediate future. And I, and without, again, going into too much detail about sort of internal motivation inside the North, I, I think I would simply argue that the Kim family wants it that way, almost needs it to be that way. And it's the classic sort of a communist dictator strategy, which is to dismiss your own shortcomings by pointing a finger of blame at the capitalist West. So no matter how bad things are inside North Korea, the Kim family has always said, A, it's because of the United States, and B, we need to prepare for that next invasion, just like they did in 1950, so, you know, I'm sorry that we don't have consumer goods, and I'm sorry that your son has to go fight in the army, but we are always preparing for the next war with the United States. So it serves a utilitarian function for them, and so it means that to some extent, I think almost no matter what the United States does, until there is significant change inside North Korea, there's not really anything that's going to affect that relationship in a positive direction.
3: And that's really reflected, I think, if you look at images of North Korean propaganda over time, one of the things that that stays really consistent is the ways in which the American military and the Japanese military are portrayed within these images. It really clearly and explicitly harkens back to the Japanese soldiers of World War II or the American soldiers of the Korean War. So they're clearly continually referencing the colonial period. They're continually referencing the Korean War as these moments of victimization that they have to prepare to really be ready to resist not repeating in the future.
2: Uh, I believe one thing is very clear in terms of U.S. foreign policy against North Korea. North Koreans' policy against United States has been very consistent. They want diplomatic normalization and they want some kind of guarantee of United States, South Korea or Japan, any allies, the U.S. allies, not to invade into North Korea. So their top concern is always their security, survival of the regime. So they want non-aggression fact with the United States, the security guarantee. So that has been consistent from the North Korea, seven years strong. The problem of the United States is the United States never ever has a consistent message towards the North Korea. Administration after administration, especially United States, all those kinds of democratic elections, and you have different types of administration, and we have all kinds of different voices against North Korea, but North Korea always have a single, one, very coordinated voice, which is their strength and our failure.
3: And I also think about sort of the way that we report on North Korean foreign policy, for example, is that you get these waves of new reporters that are assigned to North Korea and they see all of these extreme tactics and all of this different stuff. And they sort of initially report with this level of shock and this level of real sensationalism. And then usually by the time they've sort of acclimated to the various cycles of different types of North Korean modes of international engagement, they get replaced with another wave of reporters and media Mm -hmm. experts. So it's really, everybody, and that happens again with administrations as well. Every new administration has a moment of reckoning with North Korea, but then, you know, they, they have made really different decisions about how to proceed. And so I do think that it's really important to see how even the state of crisis that we're always hearing about is actually a really consistent one. And it's really the change in how it's being communicated that maintains it. So it looks like erratic behavior is actually, from their perspective, it's erratic behavior on our part. This is really speculatory, but I don't know if North Korea would argue that the U.S.'s behavior is erratic. I think that the North Korean regime is really skilled at finding pressure points, and and that's how they've been able to garner the level of attention and the level of aid that they have.
4: Yeah, I think you're right, though, in, in looking at it from the other perspective, which is that, that America is quick to fall into this sort of this trap of erratic behavior. Right, and and we think of Kim as crazy, and I mean, there's all the jokes. There's uh, there's a famous onion headline that that I use sometimes use in class, and it says uh, Kim Jong Un worried that he's not crazy enough to run the country the way his father and grandfather did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's just it's just really simplistic, sort of you know, we in the West, and you can see from policymakers all the mm-hmm. time, um, the the regime is crazy, the regime, you know, who can understand them. And the reality is their message has been pretty consistent. And it's it's just the United States has a tendency to look at these dramatic, showy, the kind of things that, that Deborah's maybe referring to. You know, you, you take this really cursory, superficial look, and it can be um, unusual and unexpected. And the rhetoric is, you know, sea of fire, and we're going to attack and destroy and, and the whole world. Um, and it, you have to kind of go beneath that. And you see that there's actually some rationality to it. But you've got to move beyond the surface to make that connection.
2: Uh, I think the ultimate question is change is coming in North Korea, but always the question is when. It's something like any kind of prediction over North Korea is very risky. North Korea has been very consistent against the world. Our problem is we do not have any kind of coordinated approach against North Korea. From United States, from Japan, Korea, China, we all have divided approach against North Korea, but we all must agree we got we got to change North Korea, and that's what's missing. The stronger we are, actually, we have more diverse approach, and they have very consistent response.
0: We will wrap it up on that note. Thank you so much to our three panelists. Deborah Solomon, an assistant professor of history and political science at Otterbein University. Thank you so much for having me. Mitchell Lerner, associate professor at Ohio State University. Thanks. And Youngbae Huang, a lecturer at Ohio State University in the International
1: Studies Department and a faculty member in Korean studies.
2: Great pleasure.
1: Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative of the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Steve Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brennan Miller and Jessica Blissett song, and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.